So we're just days away from the Supreme Court issuing its decision or decisions about the Affordable Care Act, landmark legislation here in the U.S. about which a great deal has been said and written, to say the least. And with the court about to rule, we might want to brace ourselves for another round of pronouncements of all sorts. It's at this juncture when the meaning of things may be stretched this way and that and combed over and combed over some more that we're creating some space to be a bit more reflective with the help of someone as thoughtful as Parker Palmer. Consider our discussion today an opportunity to step back from the national brink and what sometimes feels like the day-to-day -day brink of trying to transform healthcare, to have a seat in the quiet car instead. Because we have a lot of work to do, we're taking care of ourselves on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered bi-weekly, and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. It's such a treat to have Parker Palmer and IHI's Jeff Selberg as my guests today, and I'm going to introduce them in just a minute. But first, here's John Gothier with me in our studio at IHI and he offers some guidance on how to engage with WIHI over this next hour. John. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to point, out with to, to point out to help you make the most of today's program. Um, you're looking at the chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat window. We keep the chat closed during the beginning of the conversation, but we'll open it up after about 20 minutes or so for everyone to share their questions and comments. Once the chat is open, make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants. That way we can monitor it in the studio and uh, Madge and Parker and Jeff and I can all see your comments and questions. Now there's a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through the speakers and or headphones, you will see a box in the top right hand corner labeled audio broadcast. This format works best if you're on a high-speed phone connection, or a high-speed connection, excuse me. If you're on a slower connection, we recommend calling in on the phone. And if you experience any audio issues, please send a quick chat message to me, WIHI Admin. A simple solution to any hiccup may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If you're looking for the teleconference number, go to Communicate up on the top and go to the Teleconference tab and hit Join Teleconference and a bunch of phone numbers will pop up for you. And finally, we're always looking, wa looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI and we need your help for that. Please take time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. Thank you so much, John, and thanks. So I see people are still getting on board. Hope you're having a cool afternoon wherever you are having a bit of a heat wave over here on the, the east coast i don't know if that i guess it's come up from the south not sure about the midwest we can ask uh, parker so let me now provide some brief introductions there are longer bios on the wihi web excuse me pages of ihi.org so joining us by phone from madison wisconsin is parker palmer now he's the author of nine books his most recent being healing the heart of democracy Parker Palmer is the founder and senior partner of the Center for Courage and Renewal, and he's going to tell you a little bit about the center's mission in just a moment. Welcome, Parker. Thanks, Madge. Good to be with you. Absolutely. And as somebody has just pointed out, it's the first day of summer. So happy first day of summer. 
here in the studio. 90 degrees here in Madison. All right. Well, that answers my question. <laughs> we're, we're, we kind of hit the same thing here right now. So we got the shades drawn, and we're in a cool studio, and we hope everyone else is as well. Here in the studio with me is IHI's Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer Jeff Selberg. Helping leaders think through and embrace the vast changes taking place in healthcare is a big area Jeff works on. And it's in this context that he became familiar with Parker Palmer and the ways in which he helps professionals discover courage and purpose they might not even know they have. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Madge. Good to be here. Great. All right, we're going to get started. And a reminder, as John uh, said before, we do keep track of resources and references that we hear during the program. If we can get to things quickly, we'll chat that in in real time, or we'll make sure we have the links for you in a resource document that Vicki Minden puts together that we post by tomorrow morning, along with the audio. So our theme today, in a way, is going to be leading and learning in times of uncertainty. And uh, you can let us know at the end of the program how we did. Uh, we're kind of branching out here in some interesting and important ways, and we hope uh, this has something for everyone. So I'm going to start with Parker Palmer. It's a great privilege to have you with us today. Some in the WIHI audience might be familiar with your work in history, but I thought it would probably be helpful for everyone if you could just give a brief snapshot of who you are and what you do and how you came to be paying attention to the challenges of working in healthcare today. Well, thanks, Madge, for this wonderful opportunity. Um, you know, when you're 73 years old as I am, it's tempting to start with we came across in a covered wagon. <laughs> but I think I'll cut to the chase and make it a little shorter than that. Okay, all right. Um, I, I'm, I'm a recovering sociologist who did his doctoral work at, at Berkeley and um, became a community organizer uh, and have done a variety of other things in my checkered career. But one of my abiding interests has been um, in the lives of people ranging from citizens to folks doing professional work of various sorts, medicine, uh, clergy, uh, nonprofit leaders, uh, public school teachers, um, lawyers, and others, around the question of how can we help ourselves and each other bring more of our identity and integrity into our public and professional lives. Um, about 15 years ago, that question uh, got, became embodied in, an, in a small but I think very potent organization called the Center for Courage and Renewal, which is physically located in Seattle. We have 200 facilitators around the country who form what we call circles of trust, where some of the folks I just named um, gather uh, over time, cohorts of 25 people tracking with each other for a year or two or more, um, working on, the, on these issues of joining identity and integrity with the work they do in the world. Um, I got involved with medicine because of a wonderful, wonderful man named David Leach, who at the time was the um, executive director of the ACGME. And he asked me to uh, begin some work with them, which has now gone on for over a decade, um, helping to infuse um, residency programs with, uh, with what we call the courage to teach. Um, professionalism and humanism in medicine is the primary agenda. So skipping over the covered wagon part, that's the, sh the, the brief story on me. Well, maybe some point we can talk about that covered wagon. I'm intrigued. But, uh, okay, thank you. That, that, that brings us around to health care. Well, Jeff, 
Uh, Jeff and I have been talking about this program today, and Parker, you were out here several months ago also uh, meeting with some folks here. Jeff, a lot of people have a lot of advice for leaders, including healthcare leaders, and some of it's quite good. Um, I'm curious why you might uh, ask those tuned to the program to maybe open up just a little bit differently today. Well, thanks, Madge. Uh, first of all, I just have to uh, say that how much of a privilege it is to be uh, on the same program as Parker. Um, I'm a relative newcomer to uh, the Center for Courage and Renewal and uh, Parker's work, but I must say that I feel like I've known Parker for a very long time because um, the things that he teaches us, I think, are uh, so central to our work. So to your, uh, to your question, uh, the, the concept of, of leadership and follow, uh, followership is, is a very interesting thing for me, uh, as you said, Madge. And the question, I think, is, is, is how does one lead and follow such that you have a true community of people? Uh, a, a community of people who are aligned in a sense of mission and purpose, uh, aligned in terms of being able to uh, say those wicked things but with caring and compassion. And if you look at uh, what's going on in healthcare, uh, for those who lead organizations or part of organizations, you're right, there's quite a bit of uncertainty. And I think healthcare. Uh, people, whether they're administrators or clinicians, are being asked, or it feels like they're being asked to do more, do different things, to relate differently, uh, relate with different uh, people, with different organizations. And I think for us that consider, us to consider ourselves to be experts, you find yourself in a very vulnerable position when you don't know, uh, and you think you ought to know in order to lead. Of course, the problem with that is, is that if you don't know, but you say you do know, people can see right through you. Uh, that isn't a, a high integrity approach. So how do you learn as you're leading? And how do you build that community? How do you build that sense of purpose and desire to do uh, the right thing, whatever the right thing is? And I think if you read any of uh, Parker's uh, writings and uh, are involved in any of the uh, retreats for the Center for Courage and Renewal, you get a sense of, of how one goes about touching their heart, touching their intellect, and really being, I think, true to the work. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Um, and uh, speaking of the word true, uh, that, that's, a <laughs> that's a good segue into a poem um, that we thought we would uh, introduce at this point. So one of the things I think Jeff is kind of alluding to with so much going on right now, all eyes are on a lot of leaders at multiple levels in the organization and they're looking for signs that all this change, while confusing and overwhelming, is welcomed and navigation is possible. So with that in mind, uh, Parker, why don't you uh, introduce us to this poem and then go ahead and read it. Yeah, it's a poem called The Contract, A Word from the Lead by William Ayotte that I think you can see on your monitors now, those who are tuned in on the web. And I just want to say a quick word about how we use poetry in the retreats that we do for folks in healthcare and other professions. 
Obviously, from what Jeff has said, and I'm honored to be on with him, um, we're reaching here for some of the subtle variables in life. We're, we're not so focused on technique, as important as technique is, but we're focused on those factors that lie behind technique that have to do with the authenticity, again, the identity and integrity of the leader. I, I think everyone knows what it's like to be uh, to have a technique applied to you by someone when that technique is not coming from authenticity or from their true identity and integrity, but is simply a method that they're using to manipulate the situation uh, toward their own ends. So poetry has a way of, I don't know, uh, Emily Dickinson once said, tell the truth, but tell it slant. And poetry has a way of allowing us to look uh, out of the corner of our eyes at some of these subtle variables, which in the human equation are just as important as more nameable and definable technique. So let me just read the poem and then just uh, uh, say a word or two about it, and Jeff uh, may have a word or two to say as well. The contract, a word from the lead. And in the end, we follow them, not because we are paid, not because we might see some advantage, not because of what they have accomplished, not even because of the dreams they dream, but simply because of who they are, the man, the woman, the leaders, the boss, standing up there when the wave hits the rock, passing out faith and confidence like life jackets, knowing the currents, holding the doubts, imagining the delights and terrors of every landfall, captain, pirate, and parent by turns, the bearer of, <clears throat> of our countless hopes and expectations. We give them our trust. We give them our effort. What we ask in return is that they stay true. Well, there's a, there's a statement that seems to contain a lot of truth as far as I'm concerned about the nature of leadership. And the punchline, of course, is what we ask in return is that they stay true, which opens up the question, true to what? Um, in the work we do through the Center for Courage and Renewal, we're talking about staying true to our own identity and integrity. Stay, and, and that doesn't mean anything fixed and frozen. That means an evolving process of, of, of trying to touch that which is real for me, which does not involve phoning it in or faking it, as Jeff was suggesting, but in a vulnerable and, and, and open way, um, standing up there when the wave hits the rock, um, hold, knowing the currents, holding the doubts, imagining the delights and terrors of every landfall. Um, I think one of the leadership models that I have the most problem with is the cheerleader model of leadership, where everything is supposed to be turned into, um, this is really great stuff, even though we're all bleeding here. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think there's a, there's a candor that can come from leaders that sounds on one level like negativity, but is in fact a kind of honesty that reassures people that this leader understands the way it really is 
And staying true to that is as important as staying true to your vision of possibility. Those are at least a few thoughts about this this poem. Thank you so much. Uh, love hearing you read it and uh, your thoughts about it. And I want to get a cu couple comments from Jeff on True to What. Uh, I also want to remind people, if anybody is not joined in on the computer and didn't see that on the screen, uh, you can email us at info at IHI.org, and we'll send this to you, and you can grab this uh, poem and any other slides uh, uh, when you log off uh, as well, if you're on with the computer. So, uh, Jeff, uh, thoughts about true to what? Uh, maybe kind of kind of in that day in, day out <laughs> of healthcare. Well, I, I love Parker's uh, sense of poetry on the on the slant because I think typically my first reaction to, uh, to poems uh, tells me a little bit about myself in terms of what perhaps my true belief is. So when I first read this poem, what I focused on was passing out faith and confidence like life jackets. And I thought, well, wait a minute, leadership as hero, leader as hero, is that what this is about? I think when you unpack it and, and you get deeper into it, it it's, it's a series of contrasts. I mean, it, yes, there are life jackets, and hope and optimism is, is important. It also has to be honest hope and uh, optimism. But there's also other elements here in terms of holding the doubts, not, not denying the doubts, but understanding that they are there, the, the old adage of start where you are and be courageous enough to know where your organization is, where your people are. And then the, uh, the last line that Parker already uh, highlighted is really loaded for me because I can think in my own leadership journey that the, the idea of truth, the idea of honesty was very superficial. In other words, don't be openly devious. Don't say something that you know is not true. True in this context goes much, much deeper. It's, it's really true in terms of are you in touch with yourself? If you're fearful, what is it about that fear? Where does that fear come from? And that's really, really important because as you are, again, in a community of people, whether you're a leader or a follower, being in touch with those things is, is critical to that authenticity that Parker was speaking to. Okay. If, if I can chime in for just a minute, Madge, I think Je Jeff, has, Jeff has given a, a wonderful example of what it means to unpack a poem on, on the basis of his real-life experience, which I, of course, don't have in a healthcare care system. Uh, and I think that this word fear that he touched on towards the end is, is really, really critical. Um, I think as leaders, we are, we are taught, you know, don't show them the whites of your eyes, don't play your cards close to your vest. Don't wear your heart on your sleeve. This is sort of standard operating procedure in Western culture and especially in a patriarchal culture. And I think that the truth about leadership is that when the leader holds a balance that, that feels to people like reality, and reality always includes fear as well as, as vision and hope, and especially at a moment like this in healthcare, when nobody really knows what's coming, and the implications may be quite critical, even disastrous for some people and for some institutions, that that kind of candor about the wholeness of, of who we are is very important. I always like to say that wholeness, human wholeness, 
doesn't mean perfection. What it means is a, is a full embrace of the shadow and the light that's in all of us. And I think, I think in, 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 in experience of leading and being led, that's what gets translated into authenticity and the willingness to, to not only to follow, but to work together. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I, I'm going to ask you, as I hope this kind of follows somewhat logically, um, in this concept of leading and learning, um, we often think of a lot of leaders, uh, Jeff and Parker Baum, as, as, have, as being expert. Mm-hmm. That's how they got to uh, the position that they're in. Um, I wonder, Parker, if you could talk a little bit about uh, maybe some of the tension between being an expert and also not knowing and holding uh, some of the concepts I know you work with, holding creative tension, the beginner's mind, um, being comfortable with what you don't know. Uh, That might help also people get some sense of some of the concepts that you work on when you work with leaders. Right. Well, I, you know, I, as we think about this, uh, this uh, decision that's soon to come down from the Supreme Court and the impact that it may have on the important work of, of, of health care, it's one of those situations that absolutely demands beginner's mind because we don't know uh, what, what that decision is going to be. And even when we have the decision, we won't get a quick read on all of its consequences. That as I understand it, will be playing out over a period of years. And, of course, from the, the standpoint of lay people like myself and the general public, th- this whole thing is very baffling. We, we don't know the language. We don't, we don't know um, uh, the, the consequences. Um, I think nobody really has done a very good educational job with the larger public um, on the, the ins and outs of the Affordable uh, Care Act. And some of that, of course, is for political reasons. If you can obscure something, then you can get away with more. But uh, that's where we are. And it, and that kind of bafflement, that, that time of bafflement demands beginner's mind. And, and uh, I think that, that the cult of expertise, I mean, I value expertise. Um, do I want a surgeon who knows where the organ in question is located and how to get to it with while doing me minimal harm absolutely i do but uh, but th- there's a dark side or a downside to the to the cult of expertise um you, you know which which has to do with being presumptuous with 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 being arrogant with not letting other people um in in on the act and and with with not being open to the new learning and sometimes the very rapid learning that an expert must do when the situation changes, um, I'm thinking at the moment of a study done in education, a, a field with which I've worked for many years, uh, where professors were asked to teach a subject that was outside of their field that they had never taught before, a subject in which they weren't experts. So a a physics professor would be asked to teach a course in literature, for example, or a poet would be asked to to teach a course in some elemental level science. And what what was found in in this experiment, which was thoughtfully done, uh, these people were chosen because they had some attraction to the field and they had a willingness to 
to to do the work necessary to get in a position to teach it, what was found was that these people conducted more effective classes because they drew more out of the students precisely as a result of the teacher not knowing. Um, they created learning communities because they themselves needed learning communities in order to get from one session to the next and in order to check and double-check the veracity of what they were doing. They, they gave students more research assignments. Um, they asked people to double and triple-check outcomes and, and had better learning results in, in consequence. So I think it's a, it's, there, there's some very interesting things that happen when we, we don't disown our expertise, but when we hold it more lightly than we normally do and, and make space in our own thinking and in our own acting for that community of knowing, a community of inquiry to come into play. It's a very simple truth that all of us working together are normally smarter than any one of us working alone. And I think in, as we work with leaders, that's one of the things that, that we try to do. I'll, I'll say just one more word about that, again, drawing on my experience in education. Um, one of the biggest problems in education is that teachers work in silos. They're, they're kept isolated from one another. And they have very few chances in the world of, of uh, public education, for example, to, uh, to form the kind of learning communities from which they could um, develop with each other uh, best practices. Uh, the teacher down the hall can learn from what I'm doing and I can learn from what she's doing. Um, I'm sure that, there's a, there's, that there is an equal amount of siloization, if that's a word, in, in health care. Oh, yes. And it's a way of, of undermining the kind of rich and rapidly responsive learning that we need to be doing. So th there's some sense in which, while there's a lot of bad news around, um, around this Supreme Court decision, there's the, the, the good news is that it compels us I think, um, to, to think about our work in, in new ways that may well end up being more generative. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, thank you very much. That's very, very helpful. Jeff? Well, you know, I'm thinking about expertise, and perhaps maybe a sharper uh, edge to it is uh, how one applies expertise, and is the, is the expertise that is being applied right for the situation? Uh, I recently heard uh, kind of an adage that said, if you want to go fast, go alone. When you want to go far, go together. And so I, I know how to run hospitals. Uh, I know how to run an acute care-oriented hospital where there's a, a defined beginning and an end in terms of that admission. I know the structure. I know the approach. I'm an expert. Now take me and put me into a place where uh, I'm leading an organization that needs to be a component part, not the only part, of a community that is just as interested about advancing health and per capita cost as it is the experience of healthcare. I don't know it all. And so what I find is, is that I can have issues take me by the throat, so to speak, and I lose all sense of proportion in terms of relationships just at the time I ought to be relational. 
because it, it's about going far together, not being that single soul expert who thinks he knows it when he doesn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this through. Um, so I want to thank you. Thanks. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure that was really clear, right, Mark? <laughs> it was definitely clear. No, and, and that's one of the things that we were, I want to, it's kind of our final theme in a way before we open things up for questions and comments, which is sort of thinking about no sooner were, have we been talking about kind of rounding within your hospital and even getting out of your office and listening to patients and multi multidisciplinary rounds and getting closer to people on the front lines that we're now talking about rounding in the community. Right. And right. I think, yeah. um, you know, I kind of just made that up, but I, I think that that's part of it. Um, um, and I think, so maybe uh, just a, a few thoughts from both of you about getting out of your comfort zone. Um, that's not to say that the leaders in many of these acute care institutions can afford to take their eye off the ball in terms of what are all the issues going on there, but they're not separate anymore uh, from the broader uh, field out there. Yes. Jeff is well, that's exactly, that's exactly where my mind was going as I listened to Jeff's uh, statement, which I thought was very clear and compelling. Um, it, the, I was thinking about IHI's triple aim and the importance now of, of getting out into the community, which, among other things, uh, des is in desperate need of education about what all of these uh, changes or regressions uh, and advances in affordable health care may mean may mean for them i mean we all know that one of the biggest problems in american political life is the, the number of people who are left who are kept in ignorance uh, either through their own choice or or through um, disinformation or or through a simple failure of the professionals who are at the helm to actively engage in education and if, if, if the walls, if the silo walls between people within the profession are, are thick, even, they are even thicker between the profession and the unwashed masses, um, lay people like me who, you know, occasionally run into health care vendors who, who, who want to do unto us rather than talk with us. Um, and that's bad enough when you're that's bad when you're a patient but it's also bad when you're part of a public that has a stake in these in these big decisions and these big outcomes so if you if you ask you know how do you get outside your own comfort zone i think that that pretty quickly puts us on on ground that gets variously named by various people let, let me name it as the, the ground called our inner lives. I mean, if I ask, what is my comfort zone all about? Uh, well, it's partly about ego, right? Um, it's partly about w wanting to always look like the smartest person in the room. And, and that's one I really need to work on, uh, in, no matter what walk of life I'm in. If, if I want to expand my comfort zone into areas where I don't know um, and, and where I may test hypotheses or put forward um, proposals that, that, that have negative uh, results, um, I've always thought that one of the great strengths of science 
was an understanding that an experiment that that fails that that delivers a negative result teaches us even more than an experiment that succeeds or delivers a positive result because with a failed experiment repeated often enough um, you know you're able to eliminate certain variables fairly decisively whereas with a experiment that succeeds you can't always be sure that the variable the independent variables are the ones you're imagining they are there may be things you have yet to uncover so I think science itself has a model at its best for that that says getting outside your comfort zone is critical to this thing called learning and and if human history were were filled with people who had never who had been utterly unwilling to wander outside their comfort zone I suppose we'd we'd still be bleeding people or or, or living in caves so I, th I think this is inner work um, to deal not only with ego but all the other issues that bear on how, what is my comfort zone, where does it come from, and how can I stretch it, and, and as you said, Madge, hold the tension of contradiction. That's, that's become a very big theme for me in, in, in all of the work I do um, because I, I'm convinced that that holding the tension of, of apparent opposites is precisely what stretches us open to new ideas, to new possibilities. And, and it often takes um, conflict to get there. Um, one of the things we need to be teaching is, is how to hold conflict creatively in order to generate uh, those, those better outcomes. Wow, a lot of really good stuff. Just I'm gonna we're gonna now open things up for questions and comments. But uh, thank you, Parker. Jeff, I just want to ask you one question. So uh, we're we're listening at, at you know and, and taking in some stuff uh, at a, a level that I suspect is not on any CEO's um, to do list uh, on any given day. And um, I know this is kind of a, a hard thing to ask, but. You know, part of what, you know, and what WHI does and what we do is we're trying to figure out how to corral the best practices and implementation and figure out the way ahead with ACOs or any of the other strategies that are before us. Um, can I ask you for just a moment, um, how, do, how do you, how do you think one can sort of hold all, all of this in a sense um, that sort of almost gives you maybe the courage to deal with it? Well, the, leaders have to have the courage to deal with it, I think, if we're going to move the field forward and, uh, and get closer to both the patients, people, and communities we serve. I was thinking as Parker was talking that most of my fear, if I reflect back on it, has to do with ego. You know, fear of being uh, humiliated, shamed, uh, dumb, all sorts of uh, things, because after all, all the, the leader can't be shown as uh, vulnerable. I think it was only when I uh, would uh, awaken to that and ask myself, so, so what's beneath all of that, uh, that I get a better, a better feel for things. And one thing that I think is really important for us in health and healthcare is to think in terms, uh, especially for those of us that lead organizations, is to think in terms of being centered to the patient and the family of the patient and being centered to 
the corporation or the, what I call the patient life and the corporate life. And where there can be misalignment is a sense that in order to protect the corporate life, which is usually measured in terms of an income statement and a balance sheet and, and a number of uh, things like that, and of course the patient life is, is measured in terms of life and not only uh, what's the matter, but what matters to them, you can find yourself saying, well, I, I can't do both. I, I've, and this is where the stress points in. And this is where I think the real dialogue needs to occur. This is when uh, a, a group of individual professionals can truly become a team. How do we bring, how do we bring these things together in this, in this uncertainty? And as Parker said, leverage the uncertainty to get curious and, and build knowledge. And I will say that Parker's depiction of science is exactly what IHI believes in in terms of the PDSA cycles and the model for improvement. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you. All right, John has, uh, thank you, Jeff, and uh, Jeff Selberg and Parker Palmer. John, it looks like you've opened up the chat and you think everybody kind of knows what they're doing. You want to just quickly remind uh, people who uh, are maybe new to it? Yeah, just make sure, we do have a bunch of messages coming in. They're addressed to me, they're addressed to the panelists, but if you want everyone on the chat to see, make sure that you address them to all participants. There's a little drop-down menu at the, uh, the bottom right of your screen, at the bottom of the chat window, and that'll help you uh, address it to all those folks. Thanks. All right, thanks a lot. I just have to write, one, read one thing. David Grayson from New Zealand wrote in, uh, I guess, uh, Nassim Taleb, uh, is, this is a quote, uncertainty is like the wind. Wind extinguishes a candle and energizes a fire. Likewise, with uncertainty, you want to use it, not hide from it. You want to be the fire and wish for the wind. <laughs> All right, words, mm, that's beautiful. Beautiful words to live by. Uh, all right, uh, Mary Spiller, and and there's a couple of questions like this, uh, Parker and Jeff, where it feels like followers feel like, hey, leaders, you don't see me, you don't see my expertise, you don't see my input. Um, maybe people uh, talk the talk, but they're not walking the talk. And uh, I'm, um, I'll just put it to you, uh, start, we'll start with Parker. Uh, a number of people here feel that they, um, one person says, can you comment on how to best navigate the relationship between management and front lines? Somebody else, uh, Mary had said that she was concerned that somehow, whoops, I gotta go back up here. Um, her question is uh, suggestions for followers, um, how to follow a leader, she says that is truly not an expert. Uh, and maybe not taking advantage of those who are experts. So kind of related questions. Why don't we start there? Well, I think, again, the, the work I've done has been, on, as Jeff knows, on the, on the leadership side with uh, circles of trust involving maybe 20 or 25 leaders who come together regularly over a year and a half or two-year period to explore these issues in, in some depth and with real vulnerability. And I have never, I have never found a leader who didn't feel vulnerable to the to the kinds of challenges Jeff was talking about a moment ago. And 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 what's fascinating to me about these circles of trust and about this communal process that, that in a three-day uh, retreat that's repeated six or eight times over over a year and a half or two years, what's fascinating to me is that as people discover that they aren't alone in their feelings of vulnerability, that, that all of them have a problem that, for which nobody has a sort of technical or stepwise answer, 
the, the discovery that they're not alone in this is somehow the answer to the problem. Um, it's There's an easing of the mind and the heart that happens when people step out of that isolation and and realize that um, that that they're not unique in struggling with these feelings of vulnerability, and 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 it's the person who who has feelings of vulnerability but who wants to maintain the pretense of invulnerability, who falls into the category that one of the questioners asked about, namely, uh, the leader who doesn't see or acknowledge or call upon the expertise of others when that leader is the person who most needs it. You know, there's a, to me, there's a very interesting paradox in life. The, the most arrogant people I know are also the most insecure. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that there are communal ways of, of helping people take an inner journey together in communities of truth-telling and vulnerability that can bring a leader beyond that point. Um, if, if that isn't happening with your leader, it, it begs the question of what, what does the follower do? But, but there, I think, the answer sometimes is that followers need to come together in communities of support within these institutional, these dysfunctional institutional structures and and you know use use models that have uh, that come out of community organizing really that have created a lot of social change in in our society i've i've been asking myself the question over the last few years and i wrote an article about this called the new professional for the carnegie foundation on the advancement of teaching I've been asking myself what would it be like to to educate medical professionals and other professionals not only in the core skills and knowledges of their own disciplines, but also in some of the core skills and sensibilities that it takes to be a community organizer. Because within our institutions, especially the more dysfunctional ones, these, these, these models of, of, uh, of organization and sort of nonviolent guerrilla warfare can can actually become transformative for people who who feel trapped when they remain isolated from one another. Thank you, um, Jeff. Go ahead. Yep. Well, uh, I want to just dwell a little bit, and we got lots of great mm -hmm. questions here, but I want to dwell a little bit on something that Parker said. It was about seeing, and uh, you can see, and then you can see. And uh, in my experience. I found that I, I uh, will gravitate uh, to the issue, as I described before, and I'm pretty good at framing it. I'm pretty good at building a context for it. What I have to build as a skill is, is watching and understanding and seeing the people. What is it that's going on? Are they fully present? Are, are their whole selves there? Are they somehow not present? What's going on there? So I think there's an awakening. There's this concept of awakening. And, and, and I think you, one needs to awaken to, to what's going on within themselves in order to truly see. And a leader needs to truly see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
Um, there's a question here, which I think is also, um, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a follower question, but uh, this person is ref as, says as a clinical educator in our large multidisciplinary primary practice, I find that not only am I the one who discovers the areas that need improvements, but I am also the keeper of the flame, one of the only ones that believes we can do it, that we have to improve for patients. And so her question is, uh, I believe it's a she, what heart advice would you give to me and to those like me? How do we stay in that place when we're often dealing with a lot of people who don't have a lot of hope and are maybe even somewhat negative and maybe leaders, uh, I suppose, in those positions as well? And again, we're, you know, this is not, um, we, there are no simple, I'm sure, no simple answers, I'm sure, to any of these, but uh, thoughts at all? Uh, Parker, start with you. Well, you know, I, having been in that situation myself in, in worlds other than healthcare, and having known a lot of really remarkable leaders um, who have faced into that as well, um, there's a, it seems to me there is a simple answer, but it's but it's not simple. Um, another paradox in life, and and the and the answer is to intentionally gather around you a few people. It doesn't have to be a lot of few people who can help you keep your eye on your North Star and help you keep your heart alive in the process. Sometimes these have to be people from outside the system, and sometimes they can be from, from inside the system. It, what matters is that you have the, the, a level of trust among you and three or four other folks that allows for these these hard conversations, these honest acknowledgments of of despair or failure or whatever it is, these these things that snuff out our flame. Um, one of the stories I'll never forget is the story of a college president at a very competitive, um, high prestige institution, one of the most remarkable college presidents on every count. Uh, that has ever served in this country, whom I have the privilege of knowing personally. And um, she told, I asked her once to talk to me about two or three keys to her uh, amazing presidency uh, during a time of real turmoil and challenge at this college, um, which she was able to lead it out of. And she said, well, the very first thing I did um, was to ask two or three friends who had known me for many years who knew me before I became president of X, who knew me while I was president of X, but who would still know me and care about me after I stopped being president of X. And I asked them to meet with me every other week just to remind me of who I am. And it was as simple as that. And yet this is a person of enormous um, material and, and scholarly um, practical accomplishment. And yet that was what she uh, attributed a great deal of her success to, that constant regrounding uh, in her own truth. I, I also think that, that alongside those, those modest and, and doable forms of communities of support, without which I, I don't think any of us can really survive in, in heavy lifting, the heavy lifting that we do, there's also a very critical role for solitude and reflective time and getting unplugged and and doing whatever it is that comes comes naturally and and in a life-giving way 
uh, to you, which varies greatly from one person to the next. Some person, some people have a, a highly disciplined meditative practice. Some people walk in the woods. Some people read poetry. Some people sit and stare out the window. Um, some people, you know, play with their dog. Um, there's different ways, I think, to to bring us back to ground um, in in the middle of these very complicated force fields. Thank you, Jeff. Yes. So I, I would say my answer to the question is is that I think the person asking the question should go uh, to the C-suite, grab the leader they want to grab, and say, "Come see with me." Mm-hmm. Um, and it reminds me of a story. I remember uh, fairly early in my career, um, I was standing in front of about a hundred people, and I was talking about potential and opportunity and all this. And there was uh, a nurse in the front row who laughed and uh, just outwardly laughed. And I was, of course, offended and uh, said, so what is this about? And she said, opportunity. And then said, that's BS. You have no idea what's going on uh, up on the nursing floor. And so I had a moment of uh, truth, uh, which I'd like to think I made a moment of opportunity. I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up, and I'm going to shadow you for a shift, and I want to see you. And I think the cynicism in the room, you could cut with a knife. Well, he'll never do it. He just tried to. But I did do it. And uh, it was one of the most illuminating um, experiences I had. Uh, there's one thing to make rounds, walk around and yeah. kind of do the wave and all of that, but it's quite another to, to partner with someone who's actually doing work and see them do the work and be with them. And uh, that changed a lot of things. I felt very uncomfortable doing it the first time. I think she felt really uncomfortable, like she'd been set up for something. And we became close uh, friends, and we were able to do a lot. So that's what I would say to this person. Jeff, I, I think that's a gr- great example of what you were saying a moment ago about the, the willingness to see, right. and, and that often means the willingness to see what you don't want to see, exactly. be, because you, because you've said words that have suggested that you know unicorns don't exist <laughs> when in when in fact they do, and somebody wants to show you one. Um, and and that's that's we, we talk about the courage to lead. It's an act of courage, and and it takes a, a kind of presence and self awareness, and beginner's mind and vulnerability to to pull it off. It it sounds so simple, but I think we all know it isn't. And and yet at the same time, it can cr- start creating ripple effects within the organization that are very very powerful. Um, I, I want to toss in one a piece of research here, if I may, Madge, sure. um, uh, that I think is r- deeply related to all of this. That I don't I don't want the time to go by without mentioning it. Mm-hmm. So, very briefly, the the author's name is Anthony Bryke, B R Y K. Um, you can look him up. Sure, uh, we will. The book the book the book is called Trust in Schools. And he's now the, the president of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. He, um, he made his mark on the world of education by doing a 10-year longitudinal study of public schools in Chicago. And he, his question was uh, akin to the question we're asking here about what would serve the patient best. What serves the students 
student best. And, and which schools used that 10 years to improve while, while others either plateaued or declined in serving students educationally? What are the independent variables that might explain all of that? And he looked at all the usual suspects, like how much money was being thrown at the schools and what kind of governance structures they had and whether the curriculum and technique was state-of-the-art and, and so forth, and found that none of those usual suspects um, could account for very much of the difference between successful and failed schools. The, the variable that made a huge difference was one that he called relational trust, which he looked at in terms of trust between teachers and teachers, teachers and administrators, and teachers and parents. And he found that if you, you had high relational trust in your school at the beginning of that 10-year period, or if you had leaders who understood that that was the capital, the social capital that needed to be developed, your chances of improving uh, service to students over that decade were five out of seven. On the other hand, if you had low relational trust or leaders who thought that that was just a touchy-feely variable that didn't count, your chances of improving your service to students were two out of seven, and which is a huge statistical difference. And, and what was especially interesting about this study to me uh, was the fact that, that he found that the, the biggest difficulty in creating relational trust was not between teachers and administrators or teachers and parents, as many would think, but between teachers and teachers. And that's precisely because of this silo effect that we were we were talking about earlier. I, I have to imagine that a similar study done on the improvement of health care institutions would show something of the same uh, of the same to the same effect. Very interesting, Jeff. Yeah, well, I, I would just agree that I yeah. think you can apply it uh, in health care. It's interesting that uh, that dimming, you know, one of our gurus in terms of quality improvement says the, the critical factor in improving is cooperation. Mm -hmm. And uh, cooperation requires that relational integrity that's uh, so important. And we need to build new relationships, and that's what uh, is the challenge. Yeah. I'm and, and your story gives us the microcosmic example of that, Jeff. Yes. Thank you. One more quick question here, and then we're going to do some wrap-up things, including having uh, Parker read uh, from something. So I want to make sure we can get that in, because I know we only have a few minutes. Someone does suggest that maybe some of the siloization, uh, as it's referred to, if that's a word, may be at least partially due from uh, how we might band together in complex organizations, that we sort of try to kind of group together um, even as we may have a higher purpose of uh, uh, some greater community. I, I don't know if we have time to sort of unpack that, but um, I just wanted to make sure that that comment was in there. Um, uh, any, any quick thoughts on that one, Parker? Well, I think that's, uh, that's absolutely right, and I can tell you that in our work in public education, one of the most startling and effective things we do is to bring into the same circle of trust over a year and a half or two year period, K through 12 teachers. And the first thing they say to us is, we never get together as teachers in common. We're always clustered by elementary school, middle school, high school, 
and ri with rigid status differentiations between the groups. So just the fact that you've brought us together in the same room is going to make a huge difference, and it does. Okay. I could. I, yeah. I think the big transformation in, in healthcare is instead of concentrating the expertise and centralizing it in big edifices, it's a question of taking the expertise out in, into the community and to the people. And we're dealing with chronic disease, which deals, I think, so much with behavior and, and how behavior can be influenced. And that's not doing things to people. That's engaging them and relating to them. Okay, very well, a good connection there. All right, I'm gonna talk really fast to just wrap up a few things. And I, I just at least, uh, Parker, maybe we can just allude to those habits of the heart. Just to let you know that there's an interesting improvement advisor professional development program coming up at IHI. It starts on August 30th, uh, 2012. It's a 10-month program, and talk about building community and trust uh, and skills all at the same time. You can find out more information about that on IHI.org. I want to just remind everybody also uh, that once you get off the program, you can download the chat and any of the slides and the poem that you saw. We'll have some comments up on IHI's Facebook page after the show. On July 26, we have a little bit of a summer break. Uh, we're going to be talking about Triple's perspectives on the Triple Aim in a region, and hopefully we'll find some connecting connector points to uh, the program today. The webpage about this is live. And by tomorrow morning, again, you can find the audio of, of today's program and a resource document. And if you end up telling people, hey, I heard this guy, Parker Palmer, on WIHI, people say, who's he? Go right to the link and download the program, either on iTunes or uh, listen to it on IHI.org. Any questions whatsoever, email info at IHI.org. So I'm going to let Parker have the last uh, word. We've probably got about two minutes. And uh, tell us about Five Habits of the Heart. Well, this is a piece of the new book called Healing the Heart of Democracy that a lot of people have been glomming onto. And I'll, I'll, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. You can either buy the book and, and look on pages 43 to 46, or or I, I will also, after this show, send you folks at IHI a page and a half uh, f free for nothing that lists these habits of the heart with comments uh, about them. Great. Um, so the, f the five habits of the heart that, uh, that I'm working on in, in healing the heart of democracy are these. First of all, understanding that we're all in this together. Uh, secondly, developing an appreciation of the value of otherness. Uh, third, cultivating the ability to hold conflict and tension in life-giving ways. Fourth, generating a sense of personal voice and agency. And fifth, strengthening our capacity to create community. I think we've touched in some way on, on all of those today. Um, all of all of these habits of the heart, deeply ingrained patterns of receiving, interpreting, and responding to experience that involve the whole of ourselves, not just our intellects, emotions, and self-images, uh, and uh, but also the concepts of meaning and purpose, the whole kielbasa, as we say in Wisconsin. And I always like to say to people when I when I talk about these habits of the heart, which usually takes 15 or 20 minutes, I I like to say if if you can't remember all those words I just said, um, let me boil this, these habits of the heart down to the two things that we most need to reform our institutions and our professional practice. 
We need chutzpah, and we need humility. Uh, we need the chutzpah to, to know that we have a voice worth speaking and that we can speak it. And we need the humility to listen to others because we know we don't have the whole answer or even the right, even part of the right answer. I, I think that's how we move forward. I know that that's the work that um, that my outfit is dedicated to helping people do, and I, I know that it has a lot to do with IHI's agenda as well. Great privilege to participate with uh, you folks, uh, an organization for which I have the highest respect. Wow. Well, we have the highest respect for you as well, and thank you so much. Uh, you're, you're involved in so many things, and we're just thrilled that we could barge into your schedule and have you be with us today. Uh, thank you, Parker Palmer. Thank you, Jeff Selberg. Thank you for all those who uh, were with us today. Um, some of it may have been a little new and different, and feel free to let us know uh, just how you might be able to apply some of that. If any of you, as even before you log off, we'll keep the chat open for a few minutes. If you want to chat in anything you heard today that maybe is sort of ringing in your ears or staying with you uh, and that you feel that you might be able to uh, kind of uh, connect words, some words to live by um, as you go forward. And we will um, share, uh, thank you, Parker, uh, the Habits of the Heart and some of that discussion uh, so people can be reminded of that. The people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rosner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse. Rachel Yates has been our co-op for the last several months. She's done a bang-up job, and thank you to her as she moves on. We have some nice music that opens and closes the show. Their original arrangements by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Safasoa on piano. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care, most of all chutzpah and humility. That's what's going on in my head. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. Thank you.